So let's see, we hopefully might have Javier's technology now working. Javier, are you able to speak? Hello, do you hear me? Yes! In the nick of time! That is what you call by the skin of your teeth, Javier. It's a good sign now. Some things are meant to be, Javier, and this seems to be one of them. So um, welcome to everybody who's just joining us now. In just a moment, uh, we will be kicking off the this uh, Twitter space. And we are going to use the next uh, 45 minutes to really unpick and unpack what climate justice means. And the reason for focusing in on that particular topic is that climate is not just a matter of chemicals, of reducing carbon and focusing on temperatures. It is a human issue and a human problem. And as our title says from our Twitter handle, we are talking about the ways that business in particular should and could get involved. So we will be um, really focusing in on how businesses can put people at the heart of their climate action, but also what potentially their view is. So without further ado, I would like to just invite Tara. Perhaps you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and a bit about your work and where you come from. And then we have also got, just so that those joining are aware, we've got Chris Coulter, who is the CEO of Globescan, joining us uh, from London, from Unilever's uh, offices, I hear, in London, although he is, when you hear him, his accent is not from London. Um, and Chris is joining us because he's got some really interesting statistics and data just out. And then we've got Javier, um, who is the director of Fairtrade's Centre of Excellence in Climate and the Environment. And he is um, going to sort of provide that sort of first-hand experience and what they've been seeing on the ground. So without further ado, Tara, I was just wondering whether I could hand over to you for a moment to set the scene for us. What is climate justice or putting people at the heart of climate action what does that actually mean and, and why is it really important in the planet's fight against climate change thanks katie so i think you asked me two questions so one who was i and two what is climate justice so i'll do the who i am bit first and get that out of the way um, so my name is Tara Shine and I'm co-CEO of Change by Degrees, which is a sustainability consultancy um, based in Ireland. Um, and we help businesses to be more sustainable and to do so by always, always connecting um, people and the planet um, in everything that they do. My background is as an environmental scientist and working over 20 years at the international level on climate change, sustainability and environment policy. So I went, this is proof of me being a dinosaur, I went to my first COP in 2003 um, in Milan and uh, I've been involved in this international process since then. And why am I here at COP? So I'm at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. I'm talking to you from the blue zone, from the negotiating zone. And the reason that I'm here is that I co-facilitate a dialogue between expert scientists and policymakers that's informing a review of progress towards the goals of the convention. So that's what, that's what I'm doing here. Um, and the big driver for me all the way through is on climate justice. I spent um, eight years uh, working for the Mary Robinson Foundation Climate Justice as special advisor. Um, and we, we worked alongside many, many others to put people at the heart of the Paris Agreement and to get justice and rights and equity and gender equality and all these good things into the Paris Agreement. Um, and just to show you know how far that comes and why climate justice is important, the original climate convention 
written back in uh, the early 90s, has one reference to humankind. It's essentially a, a convention written around gases and our atmosphere and the climate system. It seemed to totally forget or be blind to the fact that the only reason we had mounting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere was because of people and that the only way we could bring those gases back down again was with people. Um, and so that's a very, very, very obvious reason for putting people at the, the heart of climate uh, of climate action. Um, and I think if we look at the state of the world today, we'll see that, you know, there are two big challenges. One is, I think, the, the climate breakdown associated with the breakdown of nature. And the other is growing inequality, which we might experience in our countries as poverty or homelessness or energy poverty. But we're all seeing it in one way or another, this growing inequality. And if these are the two key challenges of our times, then what's really, really clear also is that we can't tackle one without the other. In fact, tackling one without the other is a risk. And it's that's directly a risk for um for businesses. So if businesses, you know, go down a narrow funnel and channel of just thinking about reducing their emissions and getting to that net zero commitment, which is so important, um, but they forget about the people that work in, that work for them, if they forget about the people along their supply chain, they actually risk undermining human rights or doing, doing harm to people inadvertently often, but just because they haven't connected the dots between um, the social side of their of their reason for being and the environmental side of their reason for being. Um, and so that's why we really need to find ways. And Katie, I'd love a little bit later to talk about the, the framework that we've created with Business Fights Poverty um, around uh, helping businesses to have a, a framework and a tool to consider how climate justice affects their work. Um, because I think it's about now taking climate justice, which was, again, if I think back, a taboo within this process, within the, the official climate change process until very recently. First time it was written down on a page was in the Paris Agreement. I think the first time I heard the UN Secretary General call for climate justice was yesterday in his speech uh, to the COP here. So um, it's taken a while for this uh, concept and approach of climate justice to take Old, but now it is at the heart of so many of the events and so many initiatives that are top of the list here in COP this week, including um, loss and damage, which you have all been hearing about in the media. Happy to answer any questions about that as we go along as well. Let me stop there for a minute. I've said a lot of things already. Tara, you're a superstar. So um, for anybody listening, we will absolutely go back to Tara's points just made. So why climate justice, for example, has been seen as a taboo? What does loss and damage actually mean and, and we will look at that framework that Tara just mentioned so that actually you guys all have a bit of a takeaway uh, from this session. Javier I wanted to bring you in next um, with the work that you've been doing with fair trade I mean the fact that fair trade is even at a climate conference I would love to know in your experience what's the sort of first hand sort of what does climate justice actually look like? What does business engaging with climate justice look like, Javier? Hi, everyone. Thank you for the question. Well, there are several steps to take, and it depends a lot on the specific conditions, but we need to begin, firstly, with the commitment. I think that companies need to respect human and environmental rights the, re the recognition is really, really important, especially across its operation and its supply chain. Second, I think it's very important to identify how different peoples and groups are vulnerable both to climate change and climate action. This is something 
that we do with our small producers in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Third, I think, uh, the first step, I think, is investing to protect the most vulnerable ones and creating resilience. And, and next, probably, is creating capacities and skills, transferring knowledge to these vulnerable people. We work a lot trying to identify hotspots of vulnerability in order to transfer capacity. Maybe next is very important to planning how to scale up climate actions to adapt to climate change, but also to promote different paths of fair transition far away from carbon. And maybe last but not least, to promote a clear and transparent accountability. I think this is the framework that fair trade used to promote in order to move forward uh, to climate justice in, in business action. And could I perhaps have you ask, what does climate injustice look like with the people that you guys are working with through fair trade? Well, it's, it's, different to, it's different to answer that because uh, we have different types of producers. We work in, in several regions. We work in Latin America, Asia, and Africa, and there are different sizes of producers. We have really, really small producers, medium, and not, not high, but not big producers. And the different situations are, are quite complex. But maybe the main point is that all of them need to uh, improve their planning actions. This is the main reason at Fairtrade we are uh, we are promoting adaptation plans in order to have a clear understanding uh, of potential actions that producers need to carry on to adapt to climate change. Thank you so much for taking us through that. And, and I think those important points around everybody's different and therefore everybody's response to and ways that they could possibly build resilience and adapt to climate change is 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 different but at the same time doesn't mean that any of us should step back from that support um on that terms around support chris i wanted to bring in uh, you here chris i wouldn't uh, most grateful if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself but also the research that you've recently done which is helping us to sort of understand who and who, who could potentially step up to really help and lean in and where we're missing out chris Hi, Katie. Yeah, thanks. Um, nice to meet you, Tara, and Javier, too, and, and thanks for having me. Uh, I would, um, yes, I'm Chris Coulter, the CEO of Globescan. We're an insights and advisory firm. We've been around for 35 years, focusing very much on, on trying to help uh, catalyze a sustainable and equitable future. So climate justice is perfectly <laughs> situated to what we're kind of preoccupied with. Um, but uh, you referenced, Katie, some global public opinion research we've done recently, and we, we did a, a study in July across 31 markets in the world, 30,000 interviews, so quite a robust study that we've been doing for 20 years now, trying to track the the evolution and perceptions and responses to the, the, the big, the massive, two big um, challenges that um, I think Tara outlined so eloquently, climate change on one hand and the climate crisis and the inequality crisis at the same time. And what's fascinating overall is that, um, you know, there's been concerns of, around climate over the years that have kind of 
escalated and then deflated and escalated and deflated. And, and often in the history of sustainability, the recent history of sustainability, the last couple of decades, the world has kind of got excited and engaged around sustainability topics. And then events like 9-11 or um, the Great Recession have dented and, and sort of like switched people back to a more singular issue focus, which has either been security or, or the economy. What's remarkable now is that this is the, the highest level of concern people are registering around climate change in 20 years of tracking. Um, and it does, and the growth of that concern has been consistent across all parts of the world and has grown steadily in the last eight years through the pandemic, which would have been traditionally one of those things that would have knocked off, knocked it off the agenda. And then now through the cost of living crisis and the war in Ukraine. So all of, through all that, we're, we're breaking um, new ground on levels of engagement and concern around climate change worldwide. And one of the reasons for that is the is now uh, the the immediacy of impact. And, and people, almost four in 10 people across the world now say they've been greatly personally affected by climate change. So that's a big deal. And that's up seven points in the last couple of years. And we see that especially pronounced in developing countries where the, the impacts of climate are, are proportioned um, compared to other parts of the world and certainly unfairly um, affecting those parts of the world given the history of, of fossil fuel emissions. And um, we, we're also seeing that people's uh, focus and sense of impact varies across different geographies, as we'd expect, but extreme heat, droughts, floods um, are, are important. But then the second most important thing um, across the world is the connection to food prices and food price increases and climate change. So we have this remarkable wisdom of people understanding that climate affects agriculture, which affects food, which affects food security, which affects all the different elements at a very personal level for us and also at a macro level. And, and that means that we are uh, in a place of, this is an immediate problem. We know people have told us for a little bit, but people across the world are, are beginning to feel that in, um, in a much deeper way. And that removes that future discounting part of the psychological um, elements of climate change where people were able to dismiss. When it comes to climate justice or the just transition, within that there's phenomenal um, consensus across um, people across the world, where 85% of the world believes that poor people suffer most from the impacts of climate change. So people get that vulnerable communities and vulnerable individuals and vulnerable nations are disproportionately affected by it. And nearly the same amount, 77% of people across the world believe that rich countries have to pay poor countries to deal with the effects of climate change. So the contributions and the retributions of this is something that the world understands and believes. And the view that there's uh, the, the, the vulnerable among us, the poor among us, are are affected most greatly. What, what's interesting, and the last point I'll make on both of those points around the climate justice and just transition conversation, we see very um, unique levels of consensus across all countries. So when it comes to pe poor people will suffer more than climate change. Um, Egyptians, 94% of Egyptians believe that and agree with it. 93% of Brazilians do, 93% of Peruvians do. And at the very far end, 
there's 74% of Americans that believe that. And, and that gap sounds large, 20-point difference between the highest and lowest, but it's it's quite rare, that level of consensus, and, and um, most countries are in the 80% mark. The same is true when it comes to rich countries paying poor countries. There's pretty good consensus across the board, um, but there is a, a little bit of a drop-off again in some countries, and the U.S. is, a, is somewhat of an outlier in this notion of, of trans, transferring resources and wealth, where 58% of Americans believe that compared to 94% of Egyptians. And so interestingly, given that COP27 is in Egypt, uh, Egyptians in, in our study uh, come out very strongly on the, the notion of climate justice and also experiencing climate impacts and concern about it. I'll pause there, Katie. Uh, Chris, fantastic scene setting. And for anybody who's just joined us, um, we would love your questions and your comments on anything that you've heard so far. So uh, Tara Shine, Chris Coulter and Javier um, will all be taking um, questions. So if you have um, anything that you want to um, ask them, please do get that in. As I set up this conversation the sort of 15, 20 minutes ago, we really want to scene set. Why is this terminology around climate justice increasingly being talked about? What does it actually mean? And then um, how can we all get engaged with it what should we actually be doing but particularly for those who are perhaps working with or within um companies how can businesses get involved too so please do get your questions in we would really love to hear from them uh, whilst you guys are all thinking of your questions i want to ask each of my fantastic amazing panel a question around what they think or how they think businesses can potentially step up um, and and take action. Tara, perhaps I'll come to you first. We're trying to get really practical here. So Tara, what, what would be your advice to somebody who's perhaps sitting within a, a business or working alongside a company? Yeah, I have loads of advice, but I realised that, you know, I didn't do one thing at the beginning that you asked me to do, Katie, which was kind of say, like, what is climate justice? <laughs> uh, so maybe that's helpful to do so. And I always think of it first as what's the injustice. So climate change is one of the most unfair things. So the people that cause the problem, the people in the countries that cause the problem. So those of us who are middle class and well to do in any kind of developed countries, us, um, all, the all the developed countries, OECD, industrialized countries we are the ones that put the carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere so we bear the bulk of the responsibility for the fact that we have this problem yet we do not suffer the worst of the impacts the impacts are most greatly felt in the countries that are most vulnerable to the climate impacts and who caused least of the problem so if you look at small island developing states or the least developed countries in the world their amount of carbon pollution they produce is still to this day minuscule so the it's not their fault, this problem. And so that's the great unfairness that lies, the injustice that lies in climate change. And that's why we have to find a just and fair solution. And to find a fair, a just and fair solution, we need to make sure that we're equitable in the responses that we create and that we put people and their human rights at the centre of all kinds of climate action, whether we're reducing emissions or learning how to adapt to the impacts of climate change. So that's what, that's what, it, that's what it is in a nutshell. And then you kind of say, right, well, what's business got to do with that? You know, how can how can we play a role? I think then things to think about are the fact that there there is a risk if you don't think about people and the environment uh, together. So we have this phrase that we say all the time, we're going to save the planet or we're doing something for the planet. Ultimately, the planet will still be here. 
um, in centuries to come. But it will be us, the humans, that will have made the planet unlivable for, for us and for other species that live here. So really it's all about trying to figure out how do we um, get pollution under control? How do we stabilize the climate so that human beings can continue to have hopeful, positive um, futures living living on this planet? Um, and what we find is that even the best intending um, companies can sometimes um, fall into difficult situations if they don't think about people as much as they think about the planet. And sometimes it's um, businesses that are directly trying to solve the problem. So let's take renewable energy businesses, for uh, for example, right? So they're directly trying to get us away from fossil fuels and solve the climate problem. Um, but they're not always great at thinking about human rights. And so the Center for Human Rights and Business did a study, a benchmarking study, where they looked at the 15 largest renewable energy companies in the world. And they found that very few of them were embedding human rights in their in their work, in their operations. And the highest score from one of the companies was 60% in terms of its performance on human rights. And the lowest was 2% with an average around 28%. And what happens when companies in these instances don't pay adequate attention to human rights is they end up risking um, litigation and other um, uh, legal uh, recourses by the people who are who are ill affected by by what they do. So obviously that's a risk to business that we would like to avoid. And then how can a business step up and get started? Um, our framework for uh, businesses for for climate justice that we've developed with yourselves in business fights poverty and with Jane Nelson in Kennedy School and Harvard. It creates a matrix that looks at three things. It, uh, three things and then seven things. The three things are looking at the impact that companies have in terms of their operations. So that is how you do things. And for many, many companies, that's going to really, really be informed by your supply chain, all the people along your supply chain and how and how they're involved in what you're doing. Second part is around community and corporate social responsibility. So how are you using that as a force for good for climate justice? And the third is around policy. Are you using your voice and your influence um, to make the case for more ambitious climate action, to make the case for equitable and just transition. Um, com businesses have really great influence within their national systems um, and, and using that proactively rather than um, negatively, you know, as many have to, for example, prolong the life of fossil fuels. But put, imagine putting that to good use, that policy influence is really informative. And then the seven um, other elements that we consider in the framework down along the vertical, if you like, are the seven principles of climate justice. Um, those seven principles were developed by the Mary Robinson Foundation Climate Justice, and we've adapted them a little for the business audience. But they're things like putting at the core of your thinking diversity, equity and inclusion, just transition, making sure policies are people-centred, looking at how you share the burdens and benefits of climate action equitably, and building up the education and skills so that all people can engage with and be informed and be part of your climate action. And so our framework helps businesses to think through um, how they can move from having a negative impact to a positive impact across those cores of their business, their community engagement and their policy work. Um, and that uh, framework, we can share a link to it, I'm sure, in the chat. Um, Katie is, is available for anybody who wants to, to, to use it and try to get started on, on thinking about what, how they might be having a positive or negative effect in terms of climate justice from within their business. I'll stop there for now. Thank you kindly, Tara. And yeah, we'll share the link to that. And also would love your feedback, guys. Anybody listening, what do you think about that as a framework? What um, do you think should be ramped up and reprioritized, Or indeed, um, what have we sort of done too much of or, or is missing? Javier, I wanted to bring you in next. 
would love your thoughts in terms of the work that you've been doing and seeing. How do you think businesses can really make sure they have a sort of human-centered approach to their climate action? Yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, I think it's very important what Tara just mentioned to move from negative impact to positive impact. At Fair Trade, we are very committed with human rights, with environmental rights. And some of our key actions, for example, we are mapping vulnerability of climate change and, uh, and we are also mapping human rights for all of our small producing organizations in Latin America, Africa, and Asia for products such as coffee, cocoa, banana, sugar cane, cotton, among others. And, and we are not all, all, only mapping, we are investing in our small producer organization to our climate fund, especially in Latin America. We are trying to signal to the market that the producers are planning in a coherent way. They are adapting and mitigating uh, over the time and try to uh, reduce their productive and commercial risk. At the same time, we are also trying to evaluate the causal impact of our action, try to test our, our best agricultural practice to verify the impact in order to transfer this knowledge and scale up this uh, good agricultural practice between regions. And we are also promoting our fair climate standard to support a fair transition away for, from carbon with a strong component of due diligence, ensuring that the action are cost-effective, that are not pushing natural resources, and that our action are accountable and uh, eliminating greenwashing. And, and, and I think this a complete framework of action that we are conducting to, to, to move from negative impact to positive impact. Thank you so much, Javier. That's really helpful. And Chris, um, not wishing to sort of leave you out at all, um, in from the work that you guys are doing as well, do you have anything that you wanted to add or a different sort of framing to the way that you see businesses taking action? Um, I, I, just to build a little bit on, on Javier's last point around moving from negative to positive, that lots of conversation around net positive approaches to business. Um, and climate is one of those areas too. I think the other one that has a lot of heat um, related to climate is the nature agenda. And, and of course, the, the nature COP process, COP15, and will take place in Montreal in December, and, and COP27 and COP15 are, are being trying to be aligned and, and lots of synergies related to them. But I, I think one of the interesting things when we're, um, we, that we have an opportunity for business um, to integrate their approaches to responsible and sustainable business is how do we put nature more at the forefront of the climate agenda and also um, find ways to elevate some of the, the people-centric pieces that Tara was talking about so eloquently. And I think nature is just, a, seems seems like a, an easier, <laughs> easier ride and, and it's less sterile, less, you know, less just about the, the nuts and bolts of the emissions and the decarbonization process. But I think that it provides a, an opportunity for people to see, especially stakeholders and you know, consumers across the world, and maybe even some some governments, the, the concrete benefits of taking proaction, proactive approaches to addressing the climate crisis through nature, nature-based solutions, I'm sure we'll talk about. But but then the, the other piece of it is that people understand 
that uh, farmers and growers and um, indigenous people and people in local communities are needed to make a nature agenda and solve the climate crisis, which means that we need to invest in people right from the get-go, which has another nice, you know, nice component to the climate justice story. Lovely. Thank you very much. And I think we've got, um, oh, I think um, I've got a, somebody who wants to um, share a question with us uh, right now. So I think uh, Jean is here to ask a question, but I think I might have just muted him as well. Uh, Jean, if you can hear me and you want to speak now, feel free. But otherwise, I've got a question that's just come in on the lines. I think Jean is still as a listener mode. Um, a question that's come in on the lines is how can businesses make sure that their talk and therefore presumably their action around climate justice is genuine and, and not just greenwashing? So for, um, that's quite a lot of jargon if, um, if you don't sit with your face in, in this world all the time, nonstop. So climate justice, we're talking about how does business really take action on putting supporting people around climate change and greenwashing so how do you avoid that greenwashing where they talk about it lots, but actually there's no action. There's a lot of, you know, puffing of chests and telling each other how wonderful they are. How can businesses really genuinely take action and, and not just uh, greenwash? Uh, Tara, would you like to take that one? Yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, and, you know, it's funny in the day that's in it. Today is the day that the um, UN launched a new report um, of a committee that they put together that has like the most exceedingly long name. It's called the High Level Expert Group on Net Zero Business Commitments for Non-Party Stakeholders, something like that. Basically, it's about the Anti-Greenwashing Committee. Okay, And it was set up by the UN Secretary General because he was also worried about greenwashing, particularly around net zero commitments. So people making net zero commitments for like far in the distance in 2040 and 2050 but not doing anything about them or in fact doing the opposite, you know, having the commitment and at the same time investing more in fossil fuels. Um, and that report came out today and, it, um, you know, the, the Secretary General's tagline for it is it's around zero tolerance for greenwashing. And they want to bring in, of course, new new standards and measures around transparency and um, holding people to, holding businesses to account for the commitments that they make. And that kind of thing, that kind of regulation and standard setting is one important thing. But I, I think the other way that transparency is important is you, transparency to your employees is important and to your board and to your customers um, is critical. So they all want need to hold you account too. Um, and we all, when we are an employee or we're a board member or with a customer of any kind of company, we should be saying, okay, I've seen you've got a net zero commitment. Well, show me the money. What are you actually doing? Or if we can't see, if we see there's a big flashy commitment on a company's website to net zero, but we dive in and we can't see anything about how, then we should ask. And we can equally say, and can you let me know how you're putting, how people are being affected by this? So if you do this, are people losing their jobs? If you do this, are you actually in, um, investing in your employees and upskilling them so they can be part of this new future you're creating for your company. Um, so us asking those questions um, really helps to build this transparency. So greenwashing is all about trying to move from being foggy things and um, over-egging the truth to something which is just honest and transparent. So again, no company needs to be perfect right now, but we need them to be honest about where they are and honest in their reporting and transparent in their reporting to us about where they are trying to get to and showing us the progress. So again, it's the main theme of the COP here today is we have plenty of commitments all over the place, 
by companies and governments. But what we need to see is the proof that the action is being taken on the ground. Thank you. And I, I love that there is actually effectively an anti-greenwashing committee. Uh, thank you, Tara, for sharing that. And anybody, um, feel free to uh, leap in as well and, and ask uh, questions, but share links as well. We want to make sure this is a really useful, proactive group. Um, Chris, I wanted to sort of build on that question. So feel free to um, share your thoughts also on that kind of greenwashing question. But also, we're hearing a lot um, during this COP so far around loss and damage. Um, would you mind sharing for those listening, what does loss and damage mean? Because it's such an easy term, but actually, what does it really mean in practice? And then in the context of business and action, is this something that businesses need to be aware of? Is this something that they might be held account to? What's their responsibility? Chris? Yeah, so, so just on, on the building on Tara's points on, on how do we know when a company is actually doing what it's saying it's doing and, and is, is driving towards net zero. I, I think the in a lot of our stakeholder work, one of the, the refrains that keeps coming back, sort of the accountability measure is short-term goals. So a net zero commitment is, you know, indispensable, it's critical, but the proof is if, if a company can show by 2025, we will achieve this and, and having those very concrete, tangible short-term goals builds confidence in stakeholders that the company is actually on a on a path to net zero and has thought it through and is, is doing the, the hard work, which has to happen at the front end and right now. On, on the greenwashing versus green hushing debate, th this is a very tricky one. And while, of course, we want companies to um, to be be transparent but be honest in their transparency and um you know not uh, not pr their way out of issues we also don't want companies to use the excuse of the risk of greenwashing um to just be quiet because many companies find it more comfortable to be quiet and not report on or disclose or be transparent or engage and, and i i am worried that some of the 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 different um, rules in the UK advertising context in the European Union um, ha is having an effect that is is making on one on a positive end people take more seriously their communications on on sustainability broadly, but on the other end it just sort of allows people to shut it down and not talk. We, we need the green. We need a, a, a discussion and an engagement between business and its stakeholders, including its customers, and more engagement and more discussion. I think is better than just dropping dropping the conversation. Uh, on that, consumers bro broadly among those that have picked up sustainability messages and climate or otherwise, the the vast majority actually trust the brands that are talking about this stuff. So it's not it's not a widespread, you know, systemic decline in trust in sustainability messaging. A lot of people don't tune in at all, but those do are, are kind of there. On, on the loss and compensation question, Katie, I, I mean, I think Tara and Javi will probably have a better perspective, but but I, I think the the role of business here is very challenging and very tricky. And, and I don't know if there's precedence or best practice in how business approach it. Apart from, I think, references before around supply chain, value chains, ensuring that throughout the supply chain and engaging um, uh, like a, 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 a big global company's supply chain of 30 to 40,000 suppliers, finding ways to ensure that human rights are inculcated in there and the decarbonization process happens with both of those things in mind. That, that's, I think, where they can make the biggest impact on the ground in places that are, that are needed. 
I, I think the other thing that companies should be doing, especially on the loss and compensation, is working hard to advocate their uh, governments wherever they operate to play a very proactive role on this conversation around the just transition in the climate justice um, process. And that does include the regulatory framework around the COP process so that it is as robust and legitimate as possible. Because in an, in an illegitimate, low-trust world, business isn't going to thrive. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a self-interest in the long term that companies need to attend to. Um, and and uh, you've got a whole load of reactions to that uh, particular comment as well, Chris. So uh, for everybody listening, do keep your comments and your feedback coming in. We'd, we'd really like to hear them, along with any questions. The more challenging for this panel, the better. Um, Javier, I wanted to bring you in next in terms of both how you're, the farmers with which you're working with from a fair trade perspective are engaging with the businesses and their value chains how do they how are they trying to are they having to at the moment absorb that the cost that climate change is causing them or are some of the businesses stepping up and helping is there is there already that slight loss and damage actually happening or is this something that's just being at the moment absorbed 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 and, and not talked about and not engaged with Anybody listening, Javier is literally sitting next to me. He's just taking himself off mute. He's nearly there. Oh, I've lost him. Hold on. I'm going to get him to come and st stand next to me and we'll. he can literally talk into my piece while he's struggling. Javier, step into the room. Come and talk to us over here. Oh, sorry, to repeat the question, Javier. Oh, sorry, everybody. Um, so the question is, from the fair trade farmers who you're already working with, where they are already experiencing climate change, are they managing to or having to absorb the cost of that impact of climate change into their into the work already? Or are some of the businesses that they are part of the value chain of, are they helping? Are they supporting? I.e. is loss and damage from a business value chain perspective already happening? in some areas? Yeah, thank you for the question. Yeah, at the moment we have some really few experience that uh, the value of change is helping the producers to support the cost of, uh, the cost of adaptation. Uh, at the moment, what we are doing is, is, is planning. We are conducting the design of, of adaptation plans in order to have a clean understanding of uh, what our need and the best way to adapt and the producer are investing themselves to adapt. And of course, it's, it's, it will be very interesting and important to distribute the cost of, of this adaptation along the value of change. But truth to be told, at the moment, we have some really, really few experiences in this regard. Thank you very much. Um, I can see that Aftab has his uh, hand up. So will Aftab come to you to share your question in person in just a moment as well and then Juan um oh sorry not Juan Jen you have shared your question so I will ask your question after Aftab. Aftab would you like to go first? Hi thank you very much uh, Katie and Business Fights Poverty for such an important event. My question is about the agenda of the COP27. 
and we know we are happy that loss and damage has is is now on the agenda but a big problem is off the agenda and that is the 1.5 degree uh, commitment of emissions um, my question is that what does this mean because uh, there was a commitment to update it uh, uh, and and disease that and only uh, 24 or 25 out of 196 countries submitted ultimately it uh, connects with the companies and business but my question at this point in the climate justice is that what does this mean if one thing emissions cut is not on the agenda great question thank you aftab um thank you very much for sharing So um just to to clarify that question Tara perhaps you you might be the right mm-hmm. person to to speak to this she's already taken herself off mute I can see um so 1.5 degree it was what was talked about non-stop in Glasgow COP26 why is it not being talked about now has it just slipped quietly out the back door nobody's noticing we're talking about something else or is there still hope No it is in every conversation we're having over here don't you worry um it is on the agenda it is the it is the long term global goal it is the goal of the paris agreement to keep warming to well below 2 degrees celsius and to pursue 1.5 and even since we made that commitment in the paris agreement we now have so much more evidence and that evidence um for example the process i've been involved in here that evidence we've been presenting that back to the governments and that evidence says that 1.5 is a whole lot safer than 2 degrees and that every little bit of warming above 1.5 degrees increases the risks that we're all going to be um subject to and also increases the risks of some irreversible impacts things that we can't turn back in time so 1.5 is very much part of the discussion i saw you know in reading newspapers and the economist and stuff on the way over that there was very articles various articles saying 1.5 is dead it is not dead um and i saw that the head of unit made a very good comment she said we can't give up on a goal that we haven't even tried to meet yeah so we actually haven't tried hard enough to meet 1.5 and all of the research that i uh, we reviewed as part of the um science policy dialogue that i was chairing here shows us that 1.5 is just about just about just about the slimmest sliver of just about in reach but we can't waste another year or a half a year or a month we actually have to start bringing emissions down in every country in the world right now um so 1.5 we it is in all of our best interests that we achieve that goal it is going to make life an awful lot better so it's a matter of keeping that on the table so while you might not see it written as a word on the formal agenda it tends to be hidden in all kinds of complex un speech like long term global goal or temperature objective um but it is there and it is part of every conversation we're having rest assured Thank you so much Tara you have uh, made my certainly my heart a little bit lighter hearing that but I guess that's a piece that we just need to lean in even harder to make sure that you know nobody's let off the hook um whilst um that commitment is just in reach as you say um I want to invite Jean to talk now um I think Jean if you wanted to speak we can take you off and invite you to speak um However, Jean's question was I am just back from the World Bank and IMF meeting in DC and one of the pending questions is green technology. Um and they are sort of seem to be on the front row, but developing countries um own a big part of the raw materials that required for those emerging green technologies so cobalt, coltan, etc. 
Um, how do we ensure that there is a an inclusive approach to that min- mineral extraction? It's quite a specific question, but I suspect it might be um, possible to think about it across other industries as well. So, um, Chris, I was wondering whether you might be able to take that slightly knotty question um, first. Chris? Sure, Katie. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I, and I do think it does it does connect the dots a little bit on of how do we and fills in the challenge we have for this green transition overall, which has a lot of um, electrification that's that's required, and that requires minerals, and um, and some of those minerals are in challenging places like um, Democratic Republic of Congo, Congo, which gives us an opportunity on one hand to be able to um, build the capacity of that country and create meaningful green jobs in that country and other parts of, of the developing world to do that. So, so this is where the mining industry has a huge opportunity to um, leverage and apply their long history and experience and sometimes challenges around sustainable development um, to reinvigorate their um, worth for uh, part of the new economy and to drive and to drive it forward so that that's exciting and I think that we just need to th- and, I, and we know there's lots of lots of companies in the extractive sector that are are, are beginning to try and apply that thinking and ensure that happens I, I also think that um, the Creating those types of jobs and that momentum is really fundamental in this just transition. And, and there's been conversations and, and talks of, you know, can, can we not find two million new jobs uh, in the green economy, in the renewable sector in particular, in Africa as a way to showcase here's the future? And we know across the world there's more more people employed in renewable economy than in the fossil fuel economy today. And that that and that shiny object and, and creating the sense of this is the future, the momentum and what people want, that that's going to help people jump into and investors jump into financing that new, uh, new economy, which is so fundamental, and uh, allow people to see themselves in that as well. It's not about taking something away necessarily. It's actually replacing it and creating better opportunities, better livelihood opportunities for them and their family, and in ways that um, will be long-lasting rather than a short, the short push that will, will you know, is, is, is required in some places around the fossil fuel industry for the next couple of decades. Lovely. Thank you very much, uh, Chris. And uh, Jean, hopefully that goes some way to respond to to your question. I suspect there's a bit more to go as well. Um, I've got two questions for each of you and um, Javier, I'm going to ask you them next, but I'm going to come around the table. One's an easy question. Well, it's about your opinion. And the second one may be a little bit contentious. So feel free to choose between the two questions or answer both if you feel comfortable. So my tricky question first the terminology around climate justice, just transition, loss and damages, it has some connotations around, as we've talked about and touched on a bit, the sort of rich paying for poor and also looking historically back down the the, the track. How much, given the communities that you're working with, fair, fair trade and also the, the wider work, that you're doing how much do you feel that the justice element is absolutely vital or is it potentially putting off stakeholders from being able to be part of the conversation because they get scared that 
if you start talking about justice, no business is clean and perfect and has got a perfect history and therefore it's too contentious and they don't want to get near it. So that's my tricky question. I'm going to come around um, all of my panel now. I would love your thoughts as well, everybody listening um, to this session too. My slightly easier question, a uh, nicer one, has is, is come in um, on the wires and says, and how are you feeling about COP27? Um, what would you like to see come out of it? So my first question, a bit tricky, you know, is the terminology around just, just transition, climate justice, etc., putting people off, stopping engagement, or is it something that we just have to get used to? Um, and then the second one is how are you feeling about COP? Javier, do you want to go first? Okay, great. Thank you. I will try to answer the easy question first. Well, my, my hope for COP27, uh, I think we need to move forward to a robust uh, accountability. Uh, we need to move toward a world transition to a lower carbon economy, uh, more resource efficient with cost effectiveness in, in terms of adaptation and mitigation and more socially inclusive. I, that to achieve some of these goals is my main hope for COP27. And the tricky question, yeah, yeah justice, it's, it's absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. Vulnerabilities are exacerbating. Thus, people live more exposed to the impacts of climate change. Nearly 45% of the world population is highly vulnerable to the effects of climate change. They are very, very affected with, with disease uh, and natural, natural extreme events, catastrophic situations. So just it, it's, it's something that it, it, it needs to be in, in the equation, but the producers need to need support. I think the main point here is, is, is that we do not need to uh, discuss the importance of justice, but we, what we need to discuss is how the value of change can support the producers to uh, reduce this, this, the injustice that they are facing. I think that is the main point, how they can help the producers to reduce their injustice they are facing. Important points there. Uh, Chris, did you want to go next with those two tricky questions? For anybody just joining, um, the panel, Tara, Chris and Javier have just been asked two questions, one easy being around how they feel about COP27, what they'd like to see come out of it. And the tricky one is around the words justice, um, whether climate justice or just transition are engaging people and absolutely vital to the conversation or indeed potentially making certain organisations scared to be engaged because they feel that they don't have perfect background and, and don't want to particularly take on all that kind of legacy piece. Chris, your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, um, Katie. It's, it's a great, great, great two questions. Just on on where, how do we feel with COP27? Well, I think that, I think this is a moment um, to legitimize the the feelings of unfairness and, and injustice that, that people in developing countries have felt around it. Um, I think what has been reprehensible so far among those of us living in the global north is our inability or unwillingness to do the very minimum that we promised in Paris to transfer $100 billion a year to developing countries experiencing um, you know, egregious climate impacts. And, and we, our, our inability in the face of spending $22 trillion of public funds through COVID 
to cough up a hundred billion dollars a year is is a it's it's amazing that people um, are attending and showing up from developing worlds still on this COP process. I mean, it's it's uh, their their patience with um, what the West has has done mostly is it's uh, it's inspiring. But um, I don't know how much longer it can hold. And this first African COP ever is important to hear those grievances and to hear that um, lack of of uh, contribution and and retribution in many ways is really important. So I hope that comes out loud and clear, and and we in the North get a little bit shaken up by seeing uh, these impacts. And and we don't need anything beyond what's happened in Pakistan in the last couple of months, with a third of the country underwater, and and how um, how extraordinary that uh, that super extreme weather event was. On on the um, what was the second question, Katie? Sorry. Oh, the, the issue of environmental justice, climate justice. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think language is, you know, one hand it's sort of superficial, but on the other hand it does give people an opportunity to jump in. I do think it. This, you know, we we. It's not a new. Um, it's not a new question we've been asking ourselves. The, the person who coined the term sustainable development was a lovely man named Nitin Desai, an Indian gentleman who worked for the for the UN as an undersecretary, I think, in the UNDP. But as Madame Brundtland was pulling together our common future in the mid-80s, which led to the, the publication of our common future in 1987, which used the term sustainable development for the first time to define what we're trying to do collectively, he, he was brought in because there was an impasse of northern environmentalists and southern, you know, global southern development folks, and they could not agree on where our common future reside. And and he says he looked at the room and under you know kind of saw and created this term to bring them together as a you know, sustainable development as a as a framework for us to all understand. And and we we yet at the policy level continually focus on single issues and break it down because that's where we need to you know we need to break it down mechanistically and find solutions but we keep forgetting that at, at the it all has to come back to these things are all integrated and sustainable development is the framework which is why climate justice or just transition is very akin to that spirit that that's uh, madam bruntland published in 1987 and we need to keep going back to that that it's not one or the other that these things are connected and combined and we really can't make full progress if um if we don't do both sides of the environment and the social side together thank you so much chris tara your thoughts I'll have to be quick because everybody's just come into my room to have a meeting. So uh, I couldn't agree with Chris more on the on the language thing. Um, I remember having this conversation early on in my time working with Mary Robinson, and she's like, "It is a it's an injustice. So the only solution is justice. And no matter how hard we find that, or how long it takes us to get our heads around it, that's what the answer is. And from for businesses, it." this injustice um, is associated with risk, risk to their business. So you're at risk, your business is at risk if you're undermining people's human rights, if you're polluting too much, um, and that's not going to go away. So I, I think you just have to get get comfortable with the language and then know that you're doing the right thing so that you are not afraid, afraid of the terminology. And then I'm just lastly on COP27, um, I hope, yes, that we show solidarity with the most vulnerable countries, that we get a strong outcome on loss and damage, but also that there is an awakening amongst the developed world, the wealthy world, that the reason we are now having this conversation on loss and damage is because we didn't do what we said we would do about emissions reductions. And we didn't do what we said we would do about adaptation and financing adaptation. And we have 
we have run ourselves down this cul-de-sac into this conversation on loss and damage that the developing countries warned us we would do over a decade ago. Um, and so we need to wake up now and realize that to stop loss and damage getting out of control, we have to reduce emissions. We have to achieve the 1.5 degree goal. And we have to help every single country in the world to go through its own climate transition um, to achieve a sustainable development. And then we need to say, right, okay, we're going to work on that together. And we see the value of working together and solidarity becomes the, the big next step in what we do. And now I have to go and mute because there's all kinds of people in my room. <laughs> and for anybody listening, Tara is inside the blue zone within COP27. So the noise that she's got in the background is not because she's um, accidentally put herself in a coffee shop. No, no, Tara is literally in the thick of it. Um, and I'm, I've, I've then got uh, Javier, who's from Fairtrade, literally sitting next to me. And we are also within Charm um, on the sort of peripheral and outside outskirts. We've got five minutes left and I want to make sure we finish on time. Anybody listening, jump into, please retweet. There have been amazing points being made here. People need to remind themselves and it needs to be heard. Do share, do shout about it. We cannot let anybody off the hook here. We all have to lean in, every single one of us, all the time. Um, my last question, therefore, is what's the key action and what's your biggest hope? So key action, biggest hope. Have you? What would be your kind of takeaway? Well, we, we used to say something at fair trade that there is no climate justice without fair trade. And I, I think this, this quote uh, summarizes all of our thoughts. Uh, we work with producers, they live by selling products, but climate change is affecting their incomes, their livelihoods. So there is no climate justice without fair trade because they live of, of, of this trade and, and we need to make it fair. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Javier. Chris, what would be your one takeaway and, and, and key hope? Yeah, I think my, my, the key hope is that we um, begin to see the upside of this and to see that it's not about just avoiding apocalypse, which it is, of course, but actually creating a future that we all want, that our kids want, and, and, and living towards it, and, and sort of seeing the, the end of this, a beautiful beach that is going to be lovely, that we're going to have you know, fun in and thrive around, rather than just focusing on the journey of being you know, in an airplane, at an airport, getting vaccinations to get to our, our vacation destination. But we need to concretize and see what the positive outcome is and, and drive towards that. And that's, that'll unleash remarkable amounts of energy that we haven't been able to to fully unlock so far. Thank you very much, Chris. And Tara, closing thoughts to you, if you haven't been scooped up by the uh, group that you're with. No, 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 I'm sitting on a sitting on a table outside the room, so it's all good. Um, for me, I think it's no climate justice without 1.5. So we have to keep that goal in reach and actually start to take the actions to achieve it. And then I love what Chris said. It's something I say all the time. Like the world is broken right now in so many ways. So let's make it better and, you know, Achieving sustainable development and achieving the 1.5 degree goal makes life better for all of us. So stop, we have to stop being afraid of it and start getting excited about it. Lovely. We are hopefully here. I can see one further question. We've just got a couple of minutes. If um, anybody's got a moment to answer Bev Hall's uh, question, which is um, wondering how human rights due diligence frameworks fits into the climate justice discussion. Um, could it indeed support a just transition? In the last couple of minutes, would anybody like to 
I'll, I'll let Javier and, and Tara do, do it, Kitty. I've got to drop off, but um, wonderful to be part of this and, and take everybody and, and give, give them hell on Egypt, you guys. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, Tara, did you want to talk to the uh, human rights due diligence topic? I, I just kind of missed it. Someone walked past and said hello to me. <laughs> Can you repeat it? So, so this is the human rights due diligence uh, framework, uh, presumably the work that's coming through the EU at the mm -hmm. moment um, and how does climate justice fit into that discussion indeed could it support a just transition? Yeah exactly so there you know we need to have social and environmental safeguards on everything we do and there's been a lot of work going on say between the UNFCCC this climate convention and the UN Human Rights Council to try and create the connections between human rights and climate change that's been taken up by the EU Parliament who's also now trying to connect human rights and climate um, all again in, in pursuit of climate justice so I think it's a it's a really great thing um, and so the more that we can we can create these you know, common standards about human rights and, and climate action and then connect them together, the better. It's a really, really positive. Perfect. So on that note, it takes us up to the time. A massive thank you uh, to the wonderful um, and beautiful uh, panel that we have had today, to Tara Shine, the co-CEO of Change by Degrees, broadcasting directly out of the blue zone within the COP27 Sharm el Sheikh climate conference to Chris Coulter who joined us from uh, London although obviously by his accent not from London he was the, or is the CEO of Globescan and to Javier Aguilera who is the director of Fair Trade Centre of Excellence in Climate and Environment who has been sitting next to me quietly with a, we've had a window between us <laughs> the entire way through this so massive thank you to everybody uh, joining as well as mentioned please do shout about what you've heard today. If there was a particular point that meant something to you, um, if we should follow up and do something else um, off the back of this, feel free. Um, the whole point of Business Fights Poverty is to bring people together to have a conversation. We want more and more people to be part of that so that you guys feel able to um, be empowered to take action, to go back and support your businesses, to do uh, more good um, and indeed just to support one another that's the whole point of business fights poverty we are a community we are all friends and we care deeply so massive thank you very much uh, to everybody wherever you are in the world thank you and goodbye <laughs>